and welcome to this week's Rooted Teaching. Today we're going to be looking at the triune nature of God, the triune being of God. And this is a difficult subject to understand. So please take a look at the notes because it will be helpful to follow along. The first point I want to make is that the triune nature of God's being is revealed in the Bible. This is not something that Christians have made up or invented. Quite frankly, it's, it's too amazing and too complicated to have been made up. If, if somebody wanted to make up a religion, I think there are easier ways to do it. And that having a God who is an incomprehensible triune being uh, would not be the best way to go about it. So we have come to this belief in the Trinity, in the triune being of God. Uh, through, through the scriptures, we believe it is something that has been revealed to us. It's not something that's been worked out. It's not a, a something that we've figured out ourselves, but it is something that God has revealed to us in the scriptures. And the idea of revelation is of a curtain being drawn aside and showing you what's there. And so this teaching, this understanding that God is a triune being, we, we believe it simply because God has shown us that that is how he exists. And there are really three, three lines of thought when it comes to the basis for Trinitarian belief. And the first is that the Bible is adamant that there is only one God. Monotheism is the strongest doctrinal proposition in the Old Testament. The, the creed of Judaism, Deuteronomy 6.4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. And the whole Old Testament is, is completely against there being many gods. There is one true God. That is the teaching of the scriptures. And that is affirmed in the New Testament. James refers to the Shema Creed in James 2.19. And in 1 Corinthians 8, we're also reminded that though there are gods in adverted commas, they are nothing and that there is only one true God. The second idea that comes through in Scripture, in the revelation of Scripture, is that there are these three beings that are all described as having divine characteristics. God the Father is divine. Jesus is divine. We looked at that in the previous rooted session. The Holy Spirit is divine. We studied that last week. So there are these three characters, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, who are all divine, yet we know there's only one God. And so how do we put these ideas together? And that's how we come to conclude that there is only one God, but he is a triune being. And then when we look at the scriptures, we see that there are hints at this. There are intimations in the Bible of God's three in oneness. I think of Matthew 28, where we're told to go into all the world and make disciples and baptize people in the name, singular, of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. 
And uh, there's that great benediction. And now may the love of God and the grace of Jesus Christ and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all. So there's Trinitarian language found in the scriptures. But fundamentally, we put all these ideas together. The hints in scripture at the three and oneness of God. The central idea that there is only one God. And the teachings in Scripture that the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are all divine. And we somehow have to keep these ideas together. And that is how Christians have historically come to believe in the triune nature of God. And I want to reiterate that there is something mysterious. There is something beautiful. There is something incomprehensible about God being a triune being. But that is the revelation of the scriptures. One would imagine that God would be fundamentally different to ourselves. In fact, I'd be rather worried if God was just like me. Uh, So the fact that God is an entirely new kind of being that we've never been able to conceive of, um, that, that sits well with me. This brings me to my third point. And God's being does defy understanding. And, and in one sense, why would we ever expect to be able to understand what God is, is really like? When, when one talks about God being, there's one God, yet there are three persons, this does seem to be a a almost contradictory statement. And I think Christians have struggled over the years to really explain what we understand by the triune nature of God. And even the creeds tend to simply affirm things. I I often use the example of of light and its nature to help explain theology. It's my fallback illustration. If you've ever studied physics, you will know that light, electromagnetic radiation, is something entirely different that doesn't really fit our mold in any particular way. We know that light appears to, to be a particle. You can shoot light at something and it will have an impact. And you can also shoot light through a, through a crack and it will function as a wave. So when one thinks about the nature of light, one sees that it defies explanation. It's something almost inherently contradictory. So this little illustration, I think, helps show us how sometimes we're faced with a new reality in life that we simply have to accept and, and move on. And I think so it is with the triune nature of God. It does seem contradictory and it is hard to understand and to fathom, but that is the revelation of the scripture. And for 2,000 years, that is the only way that Christians have been able to make sense of the teachings of the scriptures. So, as I said, often Christians have explained and defended their belief in the Trinity by defining what they don't believe. And here are two very important denials. And I think as Christians, it's easy for us to 
to fall into some of these traps when it comes to understanding the triune nature of God. So let me say it as clearly as possible. Christians do not believe in tritheism. We do not believe that there are three equal, closely related gods who are all in in a good relationship with one another. Christians do not believe in three gods. Christians only believe that there is one God. But we believe that God's nature is very special, that he is a three-beinged, singular God, if I can put it that way. So we don't believe in tritheism. The second thing I want to really stress that Christians do not believe in, and that this has never formed part of historical Christianity and orthodox belief, even though it was uh, debated for thousands of years, well, 2,000 years. Uh, We do not believe in modalism. And there are some people that even teach this today that you may come across on, on television. And modalism is the belief that there is one God who reveals himself in three different ways. In other words, first, God revealed himself as the Father. And this would be the God of the Old Testament. And then when Jesus came to earth, God revealed himself and appeared as Jesus. And then when Jesus went to heaven, God appeared a third way and then appeared as the Holy Spirit. And this is something that we need to reject. This is not what the Bible teaches about the Trinity or the triune being of God. There is one God and he doesn't take it in turns to express himself in different ways. First the Father, then the Son, and now the Holy Spirit. Fourthly, the the triune nature of God's being fits in with what we know about God. In other words, before anything had been created in this universe, before there was a universe, there was just God. God was all that existed because he has always existed and God exists outside of creation. And this explains how God could be a relational being prior to creation. God's very nature is relational. So before God created anything, before he created the universe, God was Father, Son, and Spirit. Before anything was created, God was relationally self-sufficient. And this is why God is love. This is why God in his very nature, in his very being, is community. And God is fulfilled and complete in and of himself. I sometimes think that God created the universe, God created the world, the earth, human beings, for the same reason that a a loving couple might want to have children. They're so happy together and they want to share their love and their life with others. And God, this relational being, created the universe as an outflow and as an expression of his amazing love. I want to delve deeper into the nature of 
the, the triune God. And I want to talk about role differentiation within the Godhead. Role differ, differentiation within the Godhead. The three persons of the Trinity exist at all times in perfect harmony, in perfect harmony and in agreement with one another. They share the same values, the same goals. The three members persona of the Trinity are in perfect harmony and unity with one another and they function in unison all of the time. And so another misconception that we need to correct about God is this idea that the God of the Old Testament was harsh and judgmental. And now we, we, we see the God of the New Testament who's gracious and gentle and kind. We need to reject that strongly. It is a very unbiblical view of God. God's personality and his values have remained the same. God is the same yesterday, today, and for, forever. God's character is not developing or changing or improving, as some may intimate. And so the Bible merely reveals different aspects of God's nature at different times. Let me give you a simple illustration. Think of a father... <coughs> disciplining a child and getting really cross with the child because the child's been naughty. It would be wrong to take a photo of the father in that moment where he's expressing his anger, expressing his displeasure. It would be wrong to take a photo of the father in that moment and then say this is what that father is like. That would be a completely untrue picture of the father. And so you can't take a single story out of the Old Testament and say, oh, well, that reveals what God is like. Of, of course it, it does not. It simply shows a, a, a particular aspect of God's character at a particular point in a given set of circumstances. I want to take some time to disprove the notion that there is a fierce God in the Old Testament and a loving God in the New Testament. I've, I've carefully selected some scriptures and I want to show that a case can be made that the opposite is true. That actually it's in the Old Testament that we see that God is loving and gracious and kind. And it's in the New Testament that we see a picture of God who is, who is firm and who judges his people. So here are some scriptures, and I want to look at the God of the Old Testament. Take a look with me at Isaiah 49, verse 13. There Isaiah says, The Lord comforts his people and will have compassion on his afflicted ones. And then there's this beautiful picture in verse 15. Can a mother forget the baby at her breast and have no compassion on the child she has born. Though that mother, a mother might forget, I will not forget you. See, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. Isn't this a lovely tender picture of the love of God where God compares himself to a mother who's, 
who's nursed a baby at the breast and says that that bond, that, that love that that mother feels for that child, that baby, that's the same love, in fact, greater so, that God feels for his people. And then if you jump across to Hebrews chapter 12 in the New Testament, we read these frightening words. You have come to God, the judge of all men, to the spirits of righteous men made perfect, and to Jesus. See to it that you don't refuse him who speaks. If they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, how much less will we if we turn away him who warns us from heaven? Verse 28. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and, and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. So there are times in the Old Testament where God is revealed as a, as a new mother nursing a baby at the breast. And here in the New Testament... The writer in Hebrews makes the point, if you think people needed to be scared of God in the Old Testament, when Moses brought the law to them, how much more do you need to catch a wake-up and take seriously what Jesus is mediating to us in the New Covenant? And then he says, just as there was fire on the mountain of Sinai, so that's how we need to worship God today, with reverence and awe, because... Our God is a consuming fire. It is wrong to just say God is a God of love. Yes, there is a scripture that says that in John's letters. God is love. That's a snapshot of God. But we're also told, yeah, our God is a consuming fire. Our God is a, a God who judges his people. So these scriptures come to us from Hebrews 12. Here's something from Revelation 19. And this is particularly about Jesus. Gentle Jesus, meek and mild, as we sing. John in his revelation in verse 11 of chapter 19, he says, I saw heaven standing open. And there was a white horse and on the horse was this rider who's, who's called faithful and true. Yeah, that's Jesus. With justice, he judges and makes war. Yes, gentle Jesus, meek and mild. He's described here in the book of Revelation when he returns as he's going to make war. His eyes are like blazing fire and on his head are many crowns. And he has a name written on him that no one knows but himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped with blood, and his name is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. And out of his mouth, this is Jesus, comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has this name written, King of Kings 
and Lord of Lords. Friends, how does this sit with your picture of who Jesus is? Your understanding of how Jesus acts? Sometimes we, we think of Jesus lying in the crib, or we think of Jesus moving through the crowds, healing people. We think of Jesus standing quietly as he's falsely accused before the high priest, saying nothing. Well, that's, that is a picture of Jesus. That is how Jesus acted and responded in those circumstances. But this prophetic book of Revelation gives us another picture of Jesus. And this is equally true with the character of Jesus. He came the first time with grace and kindness to draw people to God. But when Jesus comes again, it's going to be to judge the earth. There's a sharp sword coming from his mouth to strike down the nations. And if you're familiar with the book of Revelation, you'll know that the imagery here of Jesus, this treading of the winepress, uh, it's, it's a picture of people making wine. They'd put the grapes in a trough and then stomp all over the grapes until there'd be red juice everywhere. And this is the picture. And of course, we sing, used to sing this in that great hymn, Glory, Glory, Hallelujah. He's trampling out the winepress uh, of the Lord. It's a picture of judgment in the end days. And the person described here is Jesus Christ. Let me pick up uh, point C here. What are some analogies? that are helpful in us understanding the triune nature of God. And whenever we, we use an illustration and we say, well, uh, let's think about the nature of light. It appears as a wave and a particle. These are, are, are just simple tools to enable us to illus illustrate one or two aspects of what we're talking about. So that's the best that an, an analogy can really do. But they are still helpful. I think sometimes the most helpful an analogy for understanding the triune being of God is, is the idea of water at triple point. But there is a thing called triple point, whereby if you have water in a container at a particular pressure and at a particular temperature, it will exist in that container as ice, as a fluid water, and as a gas vapor. And in one jar, you can have ice, water, and vapor, and it all just mingles interchangeably. And I think that this simple illustration uh, helps to to illustrate the oneness of God's nature. The, the creeds used to speak about the same substance, yet three persons. And I think water at triple point is, is a helpful illustration here. And there are other illustrations that help us to understand the oneness of God, uh, but they're of limited value. For example, an egg. You can't have an egg without the shell, the white, and the yolk. Or some people have spoken about a pair of trousers. Uh, it comes with the top and the two legs, but yet it is a, a singular item. Like I said, these illustrations are weak, 
and they don't really help to bring out what we're talking about because as I've said before the the nature of God is mysterious it is incomprehensible and I think we just need to rest and relax in the mystery and in the incomprehensibleness of God's nature. I want to talk now about subordination in the Godhead, in the being of God. And this is a a difficult subject to grasp, so bear with me, please. But I want to observe this, that our fallen culture, the culture in which we live, in our society, we battle to grasp the idea of subordination apart from linking it to inferiority. In other words, in our culture, we, we, always, we always tend to equate being the head with being more important. And we always equate having a role further down the hierarchy as being less important. In our culture, to be subject to usually means to be inferior to. But it need not be so. And it is not so when it comes to the being of God. Here are some other examples. Children submit to teachers in the classroom setting. But that doesn't mean the teacher is more important or of greater value than the child. Though there is a submission that takes place there. If a traffic officer tells us to pull over at a roadblock... We have to submit to the authority of the traffic officer. But that doesn't mean that that individual is of more worth or or more important than the person being pulled over. These relationships don't imply inferiority, but rather a functional hierarchy. And the same thing applies in marriage. God has ordained for the husband to fulfill the role of headship in a marriage. It's not because the husband is better than the wife or the husband is more important than the wife. It is a functional headship that God has ordained. And within the being of God, there is role differentiation within a relationship of equality. And let me share with you why I believe there is this hierarchical relationship that exists within the being of God. It's not that Jesus and the Spirit are not divine or equally part of the Godhead, but there is a functional submission that happens within the triune being of God. And in John 14, we read these words that Jesus says, The words you hear, they're not my own. They belong to the Father who sent me. In other words, when Jesus was still the Logos, he was the Word of God. He was with the Father from the beginning at the Father's right-hand side. Before the Word of God became flesh, Jesus was with the Father. Though he didn't go by the name Jesus then. He was the Word. He was the Logos. He was with the Father. And when he was in heaven, he was sent by his Father into the world. 
And we discover later that it is Jesus who then sends the Spirit into the world. Verse, verse 25 of John 14. I've spoken this while I've still been with you, says Jesus. But the counsel of the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things. And then a little bit later on in verse 31... Jesus says, the world must learn that I love the Father and that I do exactly what my Father has commanded me. So here Jesus is saying that he was sent by the Father into the world. And now as the Son of God in the world, he's been doing what the Father has commanded him to do. Jesus was in submission to the Father. Even in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus said, I don't want to go through with this. I don't want to go to the cross. But not my will, but what you want, Father God. And if you want me to go to the cross, I will submit to your will and I will go. 1 Corinthians 11 verse 3 says this, I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ and the head of the woman is man and the head of Christ is God. Now this is a very difficult scripture to understand and a lot of ink has been spilt trying to understand what Paul is saying here. What does Paul mean? The head of Christ is God. And the Greek word here is the word kephale. And some people say it means source, and other people say it refers to having authority over. I have included the reference to Ephesians 5 in the notes, and I want to read it because it it, it makes clear the meaning of head. Ephesians 5.22 Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. So as I've pointed out in both verse 22 and verse 24, Paul is talking about submission, the need for us all to submit to Christ and his plea for wives to submit to their husbands. And it's in that context, in the middle of those two references to submission, Paul writes about Christ being the head of the church. So let me unpack for you what this role differentiation looks like within the triune God. Let's look at the Father. What is, what is his role? What are the things spoken about that it, the Father does? The Father is the one who is referred to as Sovereign Lord. God the Father is the one referred to who is creator of and sustainer of all things, although that designation is also made of Jesus. But clearly in the Old Testament, it is God the Father. And we're to think of God as being our loving, caring, heavenly Father. 
Jesus taught us, he says, when you pray, address your prayer to the Father. And I don't know if you've heard Christians praying to Jesus and even praying to the Holy Spirit. And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that. But when Jesus said, this is how you are to pray, he said we must direct our prayers to the Father. Pray to your Father who is unseen. And you know the Lord's Prayer. We're also able to call out God and call Him Abba, Father. God is, God the Father is the one we worship. He is the one that we pray to. He is the judge. When it comes to the Son, well, Jesus is the one who became flesh, who revealed God to us, who is our mediator. And the one who, who represents us to God and who represented God to us. Jesus is our intercessor. He is our advocate before the Father. Jesus is seated at the Father's right hand. They're not on the same throne as it were. There's God the Father and Jesus is his right hand man. Jesus is seated at the Father's right hand. And Jesus is the mediator and the one who will return in glory and power. And you know those verses from Hebrews 4 that talk about Jesus as our high priest. Uh, and there's some other scriptures that I've included in the notes. So the Father is the object of our prayers, the object of our worship. Jesus is our Savior, our mediator, our high priest who makes intercession before the Father. And then the Holy Spirit, he is the one who is with us. The Holy Spirit is God with us now. Our bodies are the, the dwelling place of the Holy Spirit. And so technically, it is the Holy Spirit who lives in the believer's heart. We don't invite Jesus into our heart. Jesus has gone back to heaven. Jesus hasn't yet returned to earth. Jesus is seated at the Father's right hand. When we invite God into our lives, it is the Holy Spirit who takes up residence within us. We don't invite Jesus into our hearts. There's a reference to that, I think, in Colossians. Set apart Christ Jesus as Lord in your heart. That's really metaphorical language. Uh, again, in the book of Revelation, chapter 3, uh, I think probably verse 20, it talks about Jesus saying, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anybody opens the door, I will come in and, and eat with them. That is not Jesus knocking at the door of our heart. That is, a, that is speaking of Jesus knocking at the door of a church and asking a particular church to let him in. And if you look at Revelation 3, you can see that's the context. It's not at all talking about inviting Jesus into our hearts. Again, from John 14, the Holy Spirit is this other counselor who has come, who, who is our helper, our comforter, our guide, who empowers us to do great things for God and to be a witness. So in conclusion then, here's an outworking of Trinitarian theology. When it comes to being saved, 
It is the Father who chooses us, who elects us, who predestines us to be saved. It's the Son who provides atonement, and it's the Spirit who regenerates us, who causes us to be born again. So when it comes to salvation, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are all working together. The Father calls, the Son is the sacrifice, and the Holy Spirit is the the sanctifier and the one who brings new life to us. When it comes to prayer... Jesus says we're to pray to the Father in the name of the Son, in the power of the Holy Spirit. So when it comes to to praying, we're not meant to pray to the Holy Spirit. We pray as the Spirit leads us. We pray in the name of Jesus. And that's something that you do, not something that you say. And we pray to the Father. What does it mean to pray in the name of Jesus? It means to approach God in Jesus' name. It means you approach God on the basis of what Jesus accomplished on the cross for us. Praying in Jesus' name is not because you tack on to the end of your prayer the the words in Jesus' name. Praying in Jesus' name is is a way of praying. It's a way of approaching God. And we say, I pray in Jesus' name to remind ourselves that we're praying because of what Jesus did on the cross. That's why we have access to God. That's why we can speak to God and have confidence that he hears us. And when it comes to pray, to pray, Romans 8 says, The Spirit helps us in our weaknesses. We do not know what to pray for, but the Spirit intercedes for us with groans that words can't express. So the Spirit prays for us and also helps us to pray. And I've already mentioned my third example of how Trinitarian theology outworks itself. The presence of God. God the Father is in heaven. Jesus is at his right hand. Not yet returned to earth. But he will come. Colossians 3 verse 1 says this. Christ is seated at the right hand of God. He's not in your heart. He's not in my heart. We're to set our minds on Christ. Philippians chapter 2 is another verse that explains to us where Jesus is now. God has exalted him to the highest place and given him the name above every other name. I want to end by reading two scriptures. First from Philippians 2. And Jesus, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, because of what Jesus had done and because of the way he conducted himself, therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God 
the Father. Interestingly there, so even in our acknowledgement of the Lordship of Jesus Christ, as God is going to establish Jesus as Lord of all, and as Ephesians says, He's going to bring everything under Christ. He's going to do that all to the glory of God the Father. And here's my final scripture, Revelation 5. And here we see a picture of worship happening in heaven. And they're encircling the throne. Uh, these many voices numbering thousands of thousands. And they're saying, worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. So we worship Jesus. I want to acknowledge that this teaching of the triune nature of God is difficult to comprehend. I don't fully understand it. I don't think any Christian ever has. I think God's triune nature is incomprehensible. It is a mystery to us. And I'm very content that that's the way it is. Who are we to even think that we could understand what God is. And so it brings me great joy to know that God is an entirely different kind of being altogether to any kind of being that we have ever conceived of. There is only one God. The Bible is clear on that. But this one God is a very interesting being. And he is a three-beinged God. And although this is a difficult subject, I think it is something as Christians we should take great joy in. And I want to encourage you, as you outwork your Christian life, to, to think more carefully about how your relationship with God interacts with Him being a triune being.